Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. On DAB Plus and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are, of course, with the Veterans Rail Card. Just a single day service in the armed forces qualifies you for the Veterans Rail Card. Visit railcard.co.uk to apply. We'll take some of your calls very shortly, but first up, we're going to talk now to Tony Smith, former head of the UK Border Force, because it turns out, right, uh, that yet again, there has been another record broken yesterday. And don't forget, we are now in the midst of November. It's the 11th of November yesterday. Uh, basically, more people than ever came across the channel, landed on our shores, over a thousand, right, making the so-called perilous trip to the UK. It's supposed to have all died down because we're supposed to be going into the winter months, but the, the weather's been quite calm. The sea was obviously quite calm yesterday. What is going on and when the hell is it going to stop? Tony, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. I mean, it, it beggars belief, this, doesn't it? I mean, this has been the single biggest number of people that have come over uh, in any given year. I think we're now looking at somewhere approaching 30,000. Uh, possibly it will be 40,000 by the time we get to the end of the year. I mean, it's unbelievable. Why can we not do something about it? Well, I think it started with a finger in the dike, uh, Mike, a couple of years ago. And I'm afraid that, you know, the barriers are breaking now. People are realising that this route is 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 viable. I, I understand that things are really not that smooth out on the channel. Right. People are still coming across, though. They're putting lives at risk. The border force is struggling to pick up these numbers. Yeah. Uh, people are being sick uh, on, on board. They're, they're arriving in very poor, poor conditions, Mike. There's mm. nowhere to put them. Tughaven is only a temporary facility. Yeah. It's a pretty awful scenario. And it reminds me, Mike, of my time, you know, 20 years ago when we had a similar influx um, across the channel coming on ferries in those days. They were literally camping on the streets of Dover. And yeah. we found ourselves with a, a problem that's still, you know, taken a great many years to fix right. with infrastructure capabilities to manage. It's, it's, it's horrendous. Well, it really is. I mean, my understanding of the child services in, in in Dover and in that part of southeast Kent. They're just literally overwhelmed. They're overrun. They have been for a long time. Um, and we don't even really know, Tony, do we, where a lot of these people are ending up? You know, I know from, from personal experience of people that talk to me who live down there that there's an awful lot of people arriving that we don't even count because they're literally getting off a boat, walking into the town under their own steam. No border force uh, in tow, no RNLI, nothing. Uh, they're just landing in places like Dungeness, uh, landing in places like Bexhill, landing in other parts of the southeast coast which are not patrolled particularly. 
Well, that's right. I mean, and we, you know, when we do pick them up, if we do pick them up, my, the, the infrastructure isn't there, I'm afraid, uh, to be able to accommodate them and to feed them through into what is a system that the government has already recognised to be broken. And so there are vast numbers of people coming into this country. We haven't had a proper opportunity to screen them all. And uh, to be frank, I'm not sure we know where, where they all are or, or where they're all going. So it is really mm. a mess and we really must try to stop the boats, as we said before, Mike, but it takes two to tango and and I'm afraid the French are not coming to the dance floor at the moment with no. us, as I understand I it. Mean, they are refusing to discuss a safe third country agreement, which is perfectly achievable mm. in international law. It's something I've been advocating for two years now. And my understanding, though, is that the French simply won't discuss that. They're happy to, to work on the beaches, to do what they can on land, but they will not <coughs> engage in, in returns. And that is the crux of the matter. Yes, and it looks as though Whitehall is starting to leak to that effect, saying that the French are basically not doing their part. Uh, they're ceding sovereign territory to people smugglers. Uh, they're allowing these operations to go ahead. I mean, it was pointed out to me last week when they uh, when they sort of impounded that British trawler. Uh, you know, the French seem capable of stopping a fishing boat if they want to, but they can't seem to stop any of the dinghies leaving their shores. Yeah, well, so we're conflating international law with political issues here, Mike, but yeah. there is no question. I've been in this business for a great many years, far more years than I care to remember. There is no reason at all in international law why we cannot come to a bilateral agreement with France on joint patrols and returns. That's permissible mm. under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. People do not fear persecution in France. Mike, it is a safe country. They have their own asylum system, but the EU has its own migratory problems yeah. and they are being conflated into all kinds of things, as you say, like fishing, Brexit, uh, Northern Ireland, uh, to, to a political level mm. where the government cannot return people simply because there's an intransigence on behalf of the other party to take them back. Yeah. That's a political issue that could be fixed with political agreement. And I think it's though the political leaders that are the ones that should be challenged right. on this. Uh, not our, our own, not just our own, because I think our own are trying, Mike. I really do. But I think the French need to be held to account on what is their position on this and what are they going to do to help us save lives. Right. But all you've got to do as well is cast your eyes slightly further east to the Belarus-Poland border, Tony, where you can see hordes and hordes of people trying to get into Poland because they know once they're in the EU, they can basically travel freely across it, get themselves to France and inevitably get themselves to Dover. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. It's hypocritical, isn't it, of the EU? Because, you know, we are seeing troops amassed along the Polish border, border police, stopping people getting into the EU that through that route. We've mm. got a, a Greece, uh, you know, a agreement with Turkey that people coming across the Mediterranean are being stopped from getting in that way. We've got the same thing at the other side of the EU, which is completely in reverse, and they're refusing to take people back when that's precisely what they're doing on their eastern front. Mm. So it is hypocritical of the EU. But we need to keep... Let's get back to humanity, uh, Mike. This is organised international crime. Lots of criminals. They care nothing right. for human life. They're making millions and they will make millions more. And they are laughing at the establishment at the moment because yeah. we're just simply fueling the supply chains and creating misery. And, Mike, sadly, more people are going to die. People yeah. are going to drown. And we have a duty, I think, between two civilised countries, the UK and France, founder members of the 51 Convention on Refugees, to sit down and work this out. You're absolutely right. Tony, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Former head of UK Border Force, Tony Smith there. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray.
on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are, of course, the home of common sense. And if you've been paying attention, you might know that we haven't exactly been entirely supportive of COP26 as it's been going on uh, up in Glasgow for the best part of the last two weeks. I don't know what they've been talking about, what they've been doing. But in order to find out, we've got Harry Wilkinson here with us, head of policy at Net Zero Watch, who was there because you didn't have to go. So, Harry, welcome back to civilization. Good morning. The Thank climate's you. not looking very good. They haven't fixed that yet, have they? It's still raining. No, well, it's been a eye-opening experience going to uh, COP26. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what I think we've seen is is a sort of collection of the world's elites gathering together to uh, basically tell the rest of the world how to live their lives. Yeah, but also not to even agree on how that should be. That's right. And, and, and we've seen significant tensions opening up, essentially between developing countries and developed countries, yes. uh, like the UK and the US and uh, European Union countries, right. uh, who basically want to bribe the developing countries to accept all these restrictions yeah. on fossil fuel development. Right. And of course, these uh, politicians from around the world, they don't necessarily represent their population's best interests. No. Economic growth is the best possible thing mm. well, of uh, course. that they could deliver. And for also, it's rather condescending, isn't it, for people from, say, I don't know, London, to tell people from Papua New Guinea, absolutely no more foreign holidays for you, chummy, you know, because they can't afford to go on foreign holidays. They don't fly anywhere because they've got any money. That's right. And I think um, I, was, I was able to fly here, and it was a great to Glasgow and, and, and back again. And amazingly, and the was airport wasn't closed off to you because of all the private jets that were landing there and no, they were I, reparking themselves at Presswick 30 miles down the road. I felt seeing everyone else flying in that I couldn't uh, miss out no. um, on, on, on flying the only sort of uh, acceptable way to cop. I mean, I personally have not been on a plane since 2019, right, when I last went to Portugal at the end of August. That's my sacrifice, right? Not mm. because of climate change, but because of the bleeding lockdown. That's right. And, and, and although it's been hard denying ourselves these things, when you get to experience them again, it uh, helps you realise just what an extraordinary uh, and fortunate uh, society yeah. that we're, we're lucky to be a part of. And we want those privileges for the whole world. Yes. Um, and, and what we're seeing at COP is essentially a conspiracy by world leaders to actually deny these benefits mm. to the whole world. Yes. And that's really sad. It really is. And it's very hypocritical. And it seems to me that what we've been looking at over the best part of the last sort of week and a half is total and utter nonsense, really. Because you've got Leonardo DiCaprio flying in 8,000 miles in a private jet with his latest girlfriend to pick up an award for being green. And you go, am I the only person that sees this as a little bit of a nonsense? I mean... Did they take themselves terribly seriously in your experience? Or were you greeted like the sort of devil incarnate whenever you turned up anywhere? Well, the hypocrisy is uh, breathtaking. Ah. Um, you see people with their coteries of various bag carriers mm. uh, and these huge delegations. Um, and whether they all need to be there is highly questionable. Well, of course they don't. I mean, first of all, they could have done the meeting on Zoom, right? Second of all, just by turning up and bringing sort of 50 or 100 people with them, Joe Biden, I think, probably wins the prize for that, bringing 85 different cars in his, uh, in his presidential motorcade. I mean, just beggar's belief, doesn't it? Yes, we were told that this event was so important that they just had to meet in person. Uh -huh. And yet they've taken all these excess delegates um, and uh, they've... Uh, also claiming that it's one minute to midnight and yeah. the world will end if we emit right. too much carbon. If it really was that important, right. and if they really believed 
these exaggerated claims, which don't ally with the science on no. climate change. The science is showing that actually fewer people are dying of extreme weather events than ever before. Yeah. Only heat waves and uh, heavy precipitation mm. events seem to be uh, increasing in frequency. Yeah. Droughts, floods, hurricanes uh, all seem to have... Uh, no uh, seeming trend, or at least not right. one that uh, the IPCC well, I mean, can identify. You, like lots of things about the science that we're told to follow, you can make it look as if it's good or bad, depending on how far back you want to go. You know, like I, I keep saying this week, because there was a story in the Times last week, I can't remember whose study it was, greenhouse gases are currently at the exact same level as they were three to four billion years ago. Now, you can make any number of different conclusions from that, but my conclusion from it, which I'm going with, is that in that case, our presence on Earth hasn't actually changed anything. Well, there have been huge changes in the Earth's climate over yes, millennia but not in the number and of greenhouse of gases, though. Um, but yes, there, there, does, there is man-made global warming. We are seeing a change that is, is, is quicker than we've seen in previous years. But I think what's the important thing to remember here is that those changes in the climate, while real, have gone alongside an extraordinary improvement in living standards. Mm. The Industrial Revolution um, expanded the global population to the sort of 7 billion people that we see on the planet today. Most of us wouldn't actually be here if it wasn't for fossil fuels. Yeah. And that development mm. means that we can protect ourselves from the dangers of the climate. Right. So we have to look at this climate change issue um, in the context of vastly improved uh, living standards. And all of the IPCC scenarios, even the most dangerous ones, mm. actually uh, are forecasting a world in which people will be better off in the future. Right. So they might be less well off or, or better off, uh, but they're still predicting that human welfare uh, is going to improve. So when they talk about intergenerational fairness, right. what they're talking about is, is sacrificing the poor of today for relatively wealthier people tomorrow. Yes. So when they talk about the plight of refugees, for example, climate refugees, as they call them, people moving from one country to another because of the climate, I don't think that's true, first of all. Certainly people are moving around the world, but it's not because of necessarily the climate. It might be because of a war. It might be because of a famine. It might be because of some other reason. It might just be that they want to be uh, economic migrants to come live in Britain because it's a nicer part of the world than wherever it is they come from. Similarly, when they talk about people being wiped out by flooding and wiped out by fire. You know, there's no real evidence that that's actually happening, is there? Well, this is a really dangerous misconception about climate refugees yeah. uh, in particular because it completely lets off the hook corrupt regimes, mm. corrupt governments um, and mismanagement, which is always at the heart of political crisis, yeah. of war, all of these... Uh, uh, disastrous uh, events that cause large-scale migration yeah. are largely to do with political actions. Sure. We shouldn't well, let them it. off I mean, the hook. South by Sudan, a relatively new mm. country created by a war in Sudan, mm. is in a terrible state, not because of climate, but because of the war, in the same way that Ethiopia has had a famine pretty much every year for about the last 50 years. And that isn't going to change anytime soon, and it's not, nothing to do with the climate and everything to do with the warlords that run Ethiopia. Yeah, and we can look at the United Arab Emirates and Qatar. These are incredibly wealthy places which don't have those kind of migration problems, right. but they do have an extremely dry and hot climate. Yeah. So these climatic factors, while relevant, um, they shouldn't let poor leadership and poor governance off the hook. We can change all of these things for the better yeah. with uh, improvements in economic development, in political governance. Right. 
uh, and improve transparency and accountability. We shouldn't uh, be distracted from those important mm. aims, which will help the climate too. As countries become wealthier, they also become more environmentally yes. responsible because they can afford to do of so. Of course, but of course... It's only really relatively recently, and I would say in this government, that we are starting to feel the effects of these kind of climate extremists and what they want from the rest of the world. You know, where you get Rishi Sunak making a statement that companies must go green. The, F, the, the FTSE 100 companies must go green, otherwise they'll get taxed more. You know, we must think about having greener housing and greener heating, otherwise we might have to pay more for a mortgage. You know, the fact that people like Land Rover are saying we're not going to promote and sell diesel cars after 2030, we're just not going to make them anymore. You know, there's actually some real things going on as a result of all of this climate extremism, as I call it, and this lobbying that they've all been doing. Yes, we're already paying a really high cost, and people might not realise mm. just how much they're already paying. Right. For example, <clears throat> in terms of natural gas, we pay six times uh, what they pay in the United States right. because, <clears throat> because we haven't allowed things like fracking. Yeah. We, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, we spend ten billion pounds a year on renewable energy subsidies, yeah. uh, and many of those subsidies go on business energy bills as well, so they feed through mm. to higher prices well, in the shops. I mean, they pay a lot less for their petrol and diesel in America as well. That's right, and this, this is all a smidgen compared to what's coming down the road. If everyone has to get an electric car in the future, if everyone has to replace their gas boiler, these costs could amplify many, many times yeah. over. So uh, we've just uh, started to face the cost of these policies. But make no mistake, these are going to get much, mm. much worse. And that's what worries a lot of people. And I think it's what worries a lot of Conservative voters who didn't vote this government in to be the Green Party, let's face it. But they are incredibly green. Um, you know, the idea, for example, that, as you say, we're all going to have to be finding ourselves driving electric cars at some point in the next 10 years. Where are they going to get all the charging points from? We saw in Scotland uh, the laughable um, sight of a bus yesterday being towed by a diesel truck because it had run out of electricity. We saw the laugh in uh, Glen Eagles where all the electric cars had to be charged by a diesel generator because they didn't have enough electric charge points. You know, we're not really geared up yet for this new green economy, are we? No, so many Conservative voters who I speak to, but also members of the public from a wide cross-section uh, of society are worried about what the costs mean to them. They didn't uh, envisage a government that would be so focused on this green issue um, and not at the cost of living issues that matter to them. Um, we're facing an inflation crisis. We're, we're facing steeply rising energy bills. Mm. And I think most people would rather the government focused on dealing with those problems. Yeah. And much of that is down to the fact that we are using the wrong kind of energy, i.e. renewable energy, because there's not enough wind, apparently, and there's not enough solar. Uh, and despite the fact that they're insisting that we rely upon that kind of energy, we're not generating enough from it. Well, there have been a lot of claims about the cost of renewables coming down. Mm. But when you actually look at uh, the financial accounts of the companies themselves, we see persistent high costs in these technologies. Yeah. And even if the costs and were coming down... And we're subsidising them already as that's well. That's right. And even if the costs were coming down, um, w there's still all of these backup costs because mm. fundamentally it's not a reliable technology. The wind doesn't blow sometimes and we have to back it up with diesel generators, with coal power stations, right. with gas power stations, and all of that backing up costs a lot of money. Yeah. All of the extra grid infrastructure costs a lot of money so what's being seen as the headline cost for renewables is only a very small part mm. of the story we need energy which we can rely on 
the whole time. Exactly. And renewables just aren't capable of providing no. that. And also, with the last sort of 10 days in mind, Boris Johnson was hopeful that this was going to be his kind of defining moment. He was going to go there, emerge from the uh, from the dust uh, and and the ruins of, uh, of this last climate COP26 conference as the conquering hero of the new world. And he was going to lead the way and make everybody understand how important this is as, a, as an issue. But instead, uh, he's kind of crawling away from it uh, as if it's a car crash because they've now organised another one, COP27, in Egypt next year, meaning that they haven't at one minute to midnight sold anything. They're unlikely to get anything worth actually producing as a statement. I'm told they're probably likely not to make the deadline of 6pm tonight. They're probably going to be working all night to come up with a statement, which is going to mean nothing, really. So what was the point of it all? Well, one criticism that you can lay at Boris's door is that he doesn't really have any particular strong principles that he's committed to, but put his, his own ambitions first. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's exactly what we've seen with this. I think what Boris imagined would be, here would be this big event with him striding the world yeah, stage. like a colossus. Achieving this huge... Uh, agreement yeah um rather than actually being particularly concerned about the details of climate policy no. yes of course he's adopted all this uh, quite hysterical language about climate change but we see this at every cop conference at the start they say this is the last chance mm. to save the world um and then in the middle the negotiations stumble yeah they put together a document of what they think everyone can accept china but often chucks it's, their toys out the pram Often it's watered down quite yeah. a degree. Um, but then they nonetheless claim to have saved the world mm. um, the next moment. Right. And then this whole thing repeats itself again and again. We have to suddenly save the world again. The world is suddenly saved right. again. And then we meet another year and the whole but the trouble is, charade right, goes at on. At what point will the politicians and these kind of climate experts, so-called, realise that the rest of the country and certainly an awful lot of the people in the rest of the world are just laughing at them? Because we don't actually care that much. I know everybody says they care about the climate. But actually, once you start to tell them they're going to have to pay more money through taxes or they're going to have to charge more money um, through uh, their car purchasing or their house purchasing, it's all going to have to get a lot more expensive. They're not so keen. Well, it was striking um, earlier in the COP conference. The BBC had almost every story on their front page yeah. was COP26 related. Right. And yet you looked at the most popular uh corner and mm. you saw that the top 10 articles none of them had anything to do with Very it. people are being turned off by it and yeah. a daily mail poll suggested that on the one hand the public wanted the government to go further on climate change yeah. when they were explicitly asked about it yeah. but then on the other hand a huge number of people weren't willing to spend any more exactly in terms of dealing with it and then the next biggest group were saying maybe they would spend just a, a very small amount mm. so clearly there's a disconnect between people's willingness to yeah. pay um, and, and and also they want to look as if they're nice people when you ask them a question it's the same as those who used to say we want more lockdown restrictions they didn't really but they just thought they'd better say that because that was the right answer and the virtue signaling way of the world that right now is that you must care about the climate you can't go around saying you don't care about it because that would make you a monster wouldn't it that's what we all want to see a better environment yeah no one disagrees with that and i think people want to be seen to be on the right side of that argument but uh, where politicians are diverging from the public is they're viewing the environment in this very narrow way what they're looking at is in terms of only through the prism of decarbonisation and CO2 and renewable energy technology. 
the public realise that the environment is a much wider issue. They're looking at not polluting the oceans. Well, it would be nice if you could swim off the coast of Britain without running into something rather unmentionable. But there we are. Listen, right. good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Harry Wilkinson, head of eco, sorry, pol- head of policy at Net Zero Watch. Cop, cock twenty six. No, that was a Freudian slip. COP26 was an absolute and utter waste of time, money and indeed energy. So thank God it's going to be over at six o'clock tonight. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, the world headquarters of common sense, the home of the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. We're going to be getting into some very interesting stuff uh, in this hour of the show. We're going to be talking uh, to Paul Thacker, who's an investigative journalist, because the British Medical Journal has written a piece about why uh, Pfizer's vaccine trials should probably be put under a little bit of scrutiny, because apparently revelations of poor practices at a contract research company helping to carry out Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine trial raise questions about data integrity and regularity uh, oversight. Now, it turns out uh, that in Texas, researchers skewed data, didn't follow up with patients who had side effects and failed to test people with symptoms. Now, that strikes me as somewhat negligent. Doesn't it strike you as somewhat negligent? I've been saying for a long time on this show, listen, if you don't want to get vaccinated, you don't have to. You shouldn't have to do it in order to keep your job in a care home. You certainly shouldn't have to do it in order to keep your job at the NHS. If you do want to get vaccinated, go ahead. But what I'd like to see from the government is more information, more clarity, more transparency about what it is that is affecting people who are badly affected by the vaccine, who get side effects, who do become quite ill as a result. People like Mike Yardley, who we talk to on a regular basis here at Talk Radio, um, who had a first vaccine, which was an AstraZeneca, I think, um, and was so badly affected by it, he didn't have the second one. We need more knowledge, we need more information, we need more honesty from our government. And I think that's what we're going to be asking uh, Paul Thacker to explain to us. 0344 499 We're going to do shortage of the day. Uh, we're going to be talking about the NHS as well and why uh, waiting lists have now gone up to something like 6 million people. Unbelievable. 0344 499 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So according to an article in the British Medical Journal, right, a whistleblower who worked at Pfizer, um, sorry, worked at a firm that was paid to run a trial, documented dozens of failings. She provided the British Medical Journal with a number of documents, proof uh, of photographic for failings included the way that vaccines were stored. They were stored wrongly, underqualified staff who were hired to do uh, the actual tests and do the actual trial. Um, And as I said, people who uh, had side effects were not followed up. They didn't really care about what was not right about these particular trials. And of course, Pfizer uh, is now the booster of choice that people are being asked to go and get by Sajid Javid and Boris Johnson and every other member of the government. So let's talk now to Paul Thacker, investigative journalist uh, who writes for a great many uh, outlets, including the Daily Beast. Paul, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Thanks very much indeed. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm always slightly suspicious of any organisation that is not entirely sort of transparent about the things that could go wrong. One of the problems that we have in this country with our government, as far as I'm concerned, is that, you know, they do admit to having this yellow card system where you can report incidences of, you know, bad side effects or even death from the vaccine, but they're not very good at talking about it. Tell us a bit more about this story in Texas. 
So what, what happened was about a month ago, uh, the British Medical Journal was approached by a woman who worked at a contracting company that was doing um, seeing patients as part of the um, what's called the phase three clini clinical trial for um, Pfizer's um, COVID-19 vaccine. So what happens, pharmaceutical companies don't tend to do their own research. They parcel out contracts to private groups, academic research centers to get the total patients they need for a clinical trial. And this is a group in Texas, a private group. And she had worked there for a couple of weeks. And um, after she kept complaining about problems at the company, they eventually pushed her out the door. Um, the day before, or I'm sorry, the day that they had fired her, she had, by this time, she alerted the FDA. She filed a formal complaint with the FDA about problems she was seeing at her company. And was, she was fired later that day. What we found interesting was that the FDA then never bothered to follow up and inspect Ventavia right. after they had been given a you know credible um, um, allegations of problems there. And so as far as that is concerned, I mean, presumably there are a lot of these companies around the country uh, which have been carrying out various different trials. I mean, who's supposed to be policing all that? Presumably Pfizer. Uh, well, there's a couple ways that it works. Um, usually these companies work for what are called contract research organizations, which are like kind of oversee the, the various groups below. Um, and then Pfizer is also involved in looking at it. But also who is involved is the federal government through the Food and Drug Administration, right? right? And um, of course, they are the ultimate you know, authority on these issues. They are the ones who are supposed to oversee uh, you know, private research groups. They then go through and, and approve these products. And uh, what's, what's happening is that they're just not doing any inspection. So when we went back and looked, one of the biggest reports we could find was from the um, Health and Human Services. FDA sits with inside Health and Human Services. And there's an office of the Inspector General they looked at how often FDA inspects these clinical research sites. And what they found was they only inspect around 1% of them. Right. So they expect the rest to just sort of go along uh, and hope for the best. But I mean, what's interesting here as well uh, for me um, is, is, is effectively, Paul, that, that we've got a vaccine which has been rolled out very quickly. We keep being told on this side of the Atlantic anyway um, that, you know, yes, it was rushed through, but all of the necessary tests were done. Everything was done according to plan. But at the same time, we always hear from some doctors and medical people. Well, the thing is, the reason that we've changed our view about whether kids should get it or whether pregnant women should have it is that we're learning things about the vaccine all the time. So they can't really have it both ways, can they? Surely the trials will show certain information. But the more the trials are studied, they're finding out more and more. Well, I mean, that has to do with, you know, studies that happen after a product is proved, yeah. you know, in order to get a product approved, you can only test so many people. Right. Um, in this case, 44,000 people were tested for this particular clinical trial. Now, when Brooke Jackson reported these problems to the FDA, she reported to them that Ventavia had enrolled a thousand patients in the total trial. We went back and um, I just spoke to uh, another former Ventavia employee who was there after Brooke Jackson was fired. She said that Brooke Jackson did not understand the totality of patients that Ventavia enrolled. She said it was closer to 10% of the total people that were in that clinical trial. Right. Pfizer and Ventavia will not respond to questions, by the way, explaining exactly how many people um, Ventavia uh, patients Ventavia saw for that total clinical trial. Right. And is Pfizer one of the um, vaccines that's being rolled out to the under 12s in the US? Because I know they've started that process in some states, haven't they? Correct. I believe there's just an emergency authorization for that. Um, 
uh, just that was just happened. There's been a couple different meetings on it in the United States. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, what is the attitude in, in the US towards uh, towards vaccinating children? Because I mean, here in this country, the rollout didn't work very well. Uh, a lot of kids didn't want it. A lot of parents didn't want their kids to have it. And that was just down to 12 as opposed to below 12. I can't imagine that in this country, many people would want their under 12 year olds to be vaccinated. You know, I'm not I don't I haven't looked at like the latest statistics on that. It is rather controversial. There's a lot of concerns about, you know, whether kids need it or not. Um, there's some push by the government to have mandates. Yeah, it's, it's become incredibly in the United States. It's incredibly controversial right now for yeah. a variety of reasons. There there is a split in which the most part, I would say the medical community is pretty much in favor of, yeah. you know, kids getting it. Although there are there are a minority of medical doctors who have still have concerns and don't think it's legitimate, but there is a, a pretty strong uh, sentiment among I would say maybe 30, 40 percent of Americans about uh, kids getting yeah. um, these vaccines. And America, but America is quite a sort of um, shall we say medically um, sort of preventative country, isn't it? Because preventative care is a much bigger thing in the US than it is here. Uh, whereas here, for example, I think many parents say, well, it's all very well um, telling people up to the age of, uh, um, you know, over the age of 18, you can make your own decision, even sort of say 17 to 18 year olds. Yeah, you can make your own decision, even though we don't know quite what the long term effects might be. But you can't really expect a 12 year old or somebody even under 12 to be able to focus on all of the information and to understand all of the information and to actually go, yeah, that's fine. I'm quite happy to have it. They're just going to go along with what their parents say, aren't they? Oh, yeah, of course. But I mean, even even I, I think for a lot of parents, I think it's really confusing and hard to understand. And I think partly that's just because, you know, I mean, look, this is a very um, confusing issue. It's not totally clear. Like um, uh, we've been getting mixed messages in the United States. Yeah. And I believe that's, you know, it's probably poor messaging. But also, you know, I mean, evidence changes. This virus is changing. Right around the efficacy of these vaccines is also altering. Yeah, that's right. And also the way that uh, the information is, is dealt with and handled by the government. For example, I'm reading uh, in the BMJ piece that the trial uh, of children taking the vaccine under 12 was just 2,000 strong, which is not a very big number. And I think as a parent, I would like to see what the long-term effects are if you could know what they are. You know, if you're getting an MMR vaccine, for example, for your kids, or you're getting a polio uh, vaccine or something like that, you know kind of because it's been around for a long time that it's fine. Right. But what we don't know yet about Pfizer, about AstraZeneca, and about the way that these things are being rolled out is we don't yet know whether there could be an issue with future fertility or with anything else to do with, you know, medical problems that children might have had in the past, which could be exacerbated by, by the vaccine. Well, I would not worry about fertility. I don't think there's any evidence of that. But what you are what you are getting at, though, is an important issue, which is um, when you say that there's only 2000 in that clinical trial, I mean, I haven't looked at that. Um, but if you compare that to the adult trial, 44,000, this is like pretty common in all pediatric clinical trials. In pediatric clinical trials, the numbers are always much, much tinier than they are in adults. Yeah. In many situations, it's sort of a me too process in which we've tested it now in adults. Let's make some slight variations and test it like, you know, in a few thousand kids to confirm, you know, for children. That's pretty common in pediatric clinical trials, unfortunately. Yeah. And as far as this whistleblower is concerned, is she uh, talking to an awful lot of people? Is she being interviewed by anybody from the official sort of, you know, medical agencies or anything? Well, what's happened with her is Ventavia now has been putting out libelous and false statements about her. Oh dear. Um, 
Uh, they're now trying to say that she actually did not work on the clinical trial, mm. on these clinical trials. Um, apparently, her lawyer has just sent a cease and desist letter to um, Ventavia. And these false libelous allegations have appeared in various media accounts, including a story that appeared, I believe, just yesterday in the Daily Mail, in which they're saying that she actually was not you know, working on that clinical trial. I want to get back to, I think, which is the most important issue about here, which is the lack of FDA oversight on these issues. I want to read you one email that we have from, this is an internal um, uh, Ventabi email. And I also want to emphasize something. We did not write this story based upon allegations that Brooke Jackson brought to us. This was based off of what she told us, but everything was confirmed by internal documents within Ventavia. So these are issues that Ventavia was saying internally, not what Brooke Jackson was saying. And I just want to give you, um, I'm going to read you one email that went out right before she filed her complaint with the FDA. And, it, and this is an internal Ventavia document. It says, I know I've said this several times, but I'll say it again here. It's not a matter of if, in all caps, the FDA is coming. It's a matter of when, all caps, the FDA is coming. Mm. And they are coming soon. This is the biggest clinical trial in the entire world, and we are a top enroller. And this is in all caps in bold. The FDA is coming soon, like in a matter of days if I had to make a guess. Right. So this internal email goes on inside of Intavia. Brooke Jackson then files a complaint with the FDA, and the FDA did nothing. And that is the problem, isn't it? If the FDA is not responding to this, is there a reason for that? I, I, you know, I mean, look, what I like to say is you get the government you pay for. Um, you know, we have we are in a situation in the United States in which we don't want to increase taxes to pay for government services. And so then you have an FDA that is not sufficiently funded in order to do things that we think it should be doing. Right. So we're going to continue to have an underfunded FDA until we decide to fund them better. That's the reality. And that is going to be the problem. And, and as far as the kind of the long term is concerned, uh, from the population's point of view, um, are COVID rates pretty much stable in, in America now? You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it, I, as someone who's, I don't follow this like incredibly aggressively, right. but I can just tell you things just keep changing all the time and it's really hard to keep up. Yeah. The best, the best I can say is that what seems to be clear is that we're going to see an increase again um, you know, in, as we approach winter, my general thoughts on this has been, you know, we have Thanksgiving, which is the last yeah. Friday of um, this month of November, where we all come together across the country. So where people are going to be coming all together across the country. My guess is, is that about two weeks after that, we're going to see a, you know, a, a another spike. surge. Yeah. Yeah. Right yeah. before Christmas. Yeah. Just in time. Great stuff. Well, listen, right. really good to talk to you, Paul. Thanks very much indeed for taking the time. Paul Thacker, investigative journalist there on the rather disturbing story uh, of Pfizer uh, and one of its kind of satellite companies, which it doesn't own, uh, but which it used to run some of the trials on the vaccine. And it didn't look as though they did the right thing. And they're now currently engulfed in a sort of a, a libelous uh, situation with one of their whistleblowers who's told us that they weren't doing the job right. It's not in and of itself a crisis. It doesn't mean anything necessarily about the actual state of the vaccine and how safe it is. But what it does tell you is that, again, we're not being told everything that's going on. The truth is out there and it's up to us to find it. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio with you, of course, until one o'clock. Ian Collins will be here to tell us what's going on just before that. Don't forget, you can watch it all as it happens live right here on television. Apple TV, Rakuten, Samsung TV+, Plus, Roku, uh, YouTube. Now we're on Amazon Fire TV as well. You can watch us on a great variety of uh, devices, including televisions. You can watch us on flat screens. You can watch us on watches. You can watch us on iPads, tablets, all manner of different things. You can watch us on your phone, if you like, uh, just while you're on the go. And it's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, and you will not be surprised to hear that we are growing ever more every single day of the week. More and more people watching us as well as listening to us as well. Now, we've been talking about a great many things this morning. And what we haven't got around to doing yet is the latest story uh, from the NHS, which is basically the shortages, uh, the pressure. Uh, and of course, the system is collapsing, creaking around its very ears. And we're going to talk now to Lizzie Barkley, uh, medical director of Aidens, a former NHS radiologist, of course, because at the moment we're now being told that the waiting lists of people who want some kind of NHS um, operation uh, or some kind of procedure is nearing six million. Aidens is a company of medical experts and software developers responsible for the new uh, artificial intelligence tech to help ease the workload on radiologists. But the question is, have we got an NHS which is essentially analogue, trying to operate in a digital world? I think that's part of the problem. Lizzie, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. I mean, I talk about the NHS obviously quite a lot. You have great experience of working inside it. Um, it does strike me that parts of it just don't fit with other parts, you know, that there are... I mean, we were told, for example, that an awful lot of the data collection uh, was very old-fashioned and it was brought back to kind of, you know, the 21st century by one of Boris Johnson's advisors who was in Downing Street, brought in by Dominic Cummings. And, you know, so we started to kind of not waste everybody's time collecting data. But it seems to me that there's a lot more going wrong, if you like, than just the kind of administration of it um yeah i mean I'm, I'm probably not an expert in all the all the different tech systems that are in use in the nhs but yeah you're right there's definitely a need and i think there's a big drive and push at the moment from a lot of clinicians to actually improve the the technology that's you know actually being used in yeah. practice right um and yeah, one of our roles working, we're now working in uh, artificial intelligence, as you said, um, and trying to make sure that the the very kind of uh, advanced technology that we're providing does actually integrate well with what's actually being used in practice. Okay. So it is, it is a challenge. So tell us a bit about what it is that your technology does. Yeah, sure. Um, so essentially, it's... Um, we've trained the software, the technology to actually be able to recognize it's like pattern recognition of CT images. Mm. Um, and the idea is that the more images that it's seen a bit like the way a human brain works, the more images that you see, you, you become better at recognizing um, what we're looking for, which are lung nodules. So right. these are small abnormalities in, in the lungs. That's what we've trained it to do. Okay. So is it a matter then of getting the people in front of that technology so that you could look at them? Is that the hard part? Um, so I, I guess um, there are a few bits that are uh, difficult. Getting hold of um, data in the first place, mm. as, as you talked about, actually being, you know, you need data to be able to train these algorithms, to train these artificial intelligence models. But once you, um, and I will point out that the, the only data we actually need is the images itself. You know, there isn't a need to have access to all of the medical records mm. of the patients. It's purely having those images, which can be anonymized. Right. Um, and then once we have, which we now do have a, 
a device that uh, that works, and we've we've done studies to to prove that it does work. Um, and then it's about yeah, getting it into the NHS, getting it actually used in practice, yeah. because that's where it's going to have its effect. And would it be best used at sort of GP level to try and detect whether there's a problem, which can then be referred on to a specialist? Um, no, so um, it works. It needs to be used by radiologists. Right. So they're the doctors who specialise in medical image analysis and right. reading your medical images. So it needs to be used by those. So it's actually hospitals or um, I think, you know, there'll be more diagnostic centres, more mm. in the community. It's right. probably what we're heading towards. Right. So it's radiologists that use our technology. And there's talk, isn't there, from the government of setting up more of those kind of centres of, of, of clinical excellence whatever you want to call them so that people can go and get access quicker to those kinds of um, services so presumably this will be part of the rollout of extra money which is coming from Rishi Sunak once we all start paying more tax in April um yeah I hope so sorry to be uh, involving you in all this political (laughs) knockabout stuff but I mean you can't really separate the two things can you yeah no no I think um I mean I can't comment on what what's to come and um I know there's lots of great ideas how we can improve um you know getting people seen in the community who don't necessarily need to be seen in hospital right um making sure we we you know get people seen in the right places and so for example the targeted lung health check which is what we're involved in Mm. this is um an nhs england um screening program essentially trying to the aim is to actually increase um the percentage of patients who are diagnosed early with lung cancer so because if you're diagnosed early lung cancer can be treated and cured right um, but unfortunately, often these patients or individuals don't actually present because they don't get symptoms until the disease itself is really quite advanced. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is, you know, and NHS have brought in this program. So like you said, it will be a bit more community based. Um, some of the scanners are actually on mobile trucks. I don't know if you've seen any news that will be mobile trucks in supermarket car parks right. and, and places that make it a lot easier for somebody to say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm eligible to have a scan. I don't have to go to the hospital. I can get my scan actually on this truck that's in a supermarket. And there's a shortage, I understand. I don't know whether this is relevant to our conversation of radiologists. I'm not quite sure why that is, but we do a feature here called Shortage of the Day about things that we're running out of. And apparently we have got a shortage of radiologists. Why is that? We do. Um, there's a huge shortage. I think it's around about 33% uh, we, we don't have that, that we need in right. the NHS to And what, to is that the because demand. people have left or there's just not a recruitment? What? Well, I am. Yeah, it's a mixture of both. Um, Obviously, I'm an example of somebody that has left. Uh, You know, I left a few years ago because I felt like I could have a wider impact on the NHS in this role that I now do. Um, But yeah, I think it's also about funding um, investment and actually training more doctors. You know, there's not a shortage of doctors wanting to go into radiology, but there needs to be the Mm. investment in actually training up those doctors to become radiologists. Right. Because obviously, if you've got the technology to find uh, yourself being able to knock back on the on the waiting list and you're able to see more people, diagnose more people, you're going to need more people, presumably, to operate the the, the, the machinery, if you like. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I, I hope and we'll be hopefully proving this with the upcoming uh, research project we're doing with the NHSX. Mm. Um, but as well as helping to detect early lung cancers, Hopefully, we'll also be able to speed up the actual time it takes a radiologist to report a scan because right. the tech, the technology has already kind of read the scan, if you, if that makes sense. So yeah. it's, it will hopefully actually improve efficiency as well. Right. 
And then again, the knock-on effect, hopefully, to to, to knock down the uh, the waiting list time or the waiting time for people to get seen uh, will improve as well. Hopefully, but I mean, that's like you've said. I mean, we're only one piece of the puzzle. This technology, mm. you know, you've got to get, you've got to align all the right things. You've got to have the right setup for, you know, the the knock-on effect. If you're diagnosing people, you need to make sure you've got then the cancer doctors specialists who are yeah. able to see those those patients mm. so it is a big it's a big challenge i think that's why the targeted lung health check program is actually being rolled out in phases yeah so it started there's only about 20 or so sites that are doing it at the moment in the moment in england mm. and hopefully over time it will become a national program so how would somebody know to come for a scan if they didn't have any symptoms how, how does that work um they get invited um based on risk factors so that sorry the so main risk a factors or something yeah, exactly. The main ones are smoking and age. So yeah. over 55 years old and you're either a current or previous heavy smoker. Um, that doesn't mean to say there aren't other people that, you know, that haven't smoked that can also get lung cancer. Mm. But at the moment, this targeted lung health checker is about smoking history. OK. And as far as the cancers that it can detect at the moment, is it's just lung cancer or can it detect other forms of cancer? Yeah. So our company is at the moment specialised in lung cancer um, and purely looking at CT scans. You right. know, maybe over time we'll, we'll, uh, we'll also look at different things. But yeah, for now, it's trying to really focus in on the lung cancer and help with that. Right. Okay, fascinating stuff. Well, thank you very much indeed. And that's Lizzie Barkley, Medical Director at Aidens. Um, she's formerly an NHS radiologist, uh, works with te- technology company now, uh, which is getting under the skin, hopefully, uh, of cancer, trying to detect it quicker, trying to detect it more speedily uh, as well, and trying to cut down on some of these waiting times, which have now ballooned up uh, to nearly 6 million. And if you're one of those people waiting for an operation, uh, I'd love to hear your story, because, of course, we're all about sharing stories here at Talk Radio. Um, Uh, and what your personal uh, experience of the NHS is would be very valuable because, of course, if you can't get to see a GP and you can't get to be recommended or referred to another part of the NHS, then the journey has already stopped before it started, hasn't it? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.